We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. It doesn't matter where an architect is based, the Australian Institute of Architects is here to support them. While the majority of events are held in our metropolitan areas, after so many of us transitioned to working from home, greater efforts have been made to deliver support to everyone in the community regardless of where architects practice. This has been especially true of the little-known international chapter of the Institute that is made up of Australian architects working overseas. There's no doubt that Australian architects do most of their work at home in Australia, but there are so many working on projects and in practices all around the world. It doesn't matter what architecture school you graduate from in Australia, the skills Australian architects learn are being used in every country and context to achieve great results wherever an architect's skills are needed. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Anne Cleary, Samantha Cotterell, and Jared Weymouth about the work Australian architects have been doing overseas despite Australia's continental isolation. Universities in Australia produce far more architecture graduates than the architecture profession here can employ, so getting employed in an architecture firm without any professional experience is a very competitive market. After working part-time while she was studying to gain practical drafting skills, our first guest, Anne Cleary, was fortunate enough to get a job working on a new parliament house in Canberra with Aldo Jurgela. The immense expectations of the brief and the responsibilities of being a graduate on a major public project were significant to the formative years of her career, which acted as a springboard into an international career that took her all around the world. Anne shares her story of her long and winding career, from working with world-famous architects both in practice and as an academic, and also how finding your place in the architecture profession is not as straightforward as it seems. All right, Anne, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going in Canberra? Hi, Daniel. It's great to be involved with this Imagine initiative. Always very willing to help and to give some insight, I guess a long insight into our architecture profession and how to be part of it and stay in it all these years. It's really good that you mention Imagine and how we work with you know emerging architects in the profession because we're going to be talking about your career and the really unique journey that you've taken. So after you'd finished working on Parliament House, uh, you know, after seven years of working on it, what was the next step that you took following that amazing experience? Yes, it was an incredible experience and it certainly opened up not only the architectural realm but I'd had the chance to work very closely with the artists and craftspeople whose work we'd integrated into the making of the architecture, let's say, um, very closely. And also the Aboriginal perspectives, I was very much involved in the forecourt mosaic with Michael Nelson, Jack Amara's work. So, yes, it was a time to sort of open up the horizons and think, well, now what could I, you know, wanted to go travelling. And Aldo very kindly one day when we were just out at a regional place having some, a little bit of lunch, and he said, 
And would you like to work overseas? Would you like to work in Italy or Sweden or New York? And <laughs> and I'm just sort Three of Three amazing options. <laughs> and my young self is is, you know, picking myself up from falling off the chair, thinking, Can you actually make that happen? <laughs> and and he said, Yes, yes, you know, and I, I wasn't brave enough to sign up for the Italian experience. I just I didn't have any Italian language and I just wasn't confident. Of course, looking back on it, I should have just gone for it because you don't get these chances all that often. But anyway, I, I said, yes, let's try. If you can help make some opportunity in Sweden and New York, I would absolutely really appreciate that sort of opportunity. And Aldo and a couple of other partners in the practice very kindly made that happen with all the visas and, and set up the connections. And I went overseas with my husband and we had six months travelling, just, you know, going across in a, a little old Citroen across one side of Europe and over to Turkey and then and Greece and, and back again. Uh, Aldo had given me a, a sort of piece of paper, almost like the back of a, a little card where he'd marked out all the places that he felt absolutely needed to go to that were out of the way, places that you wouldn't normally realise to make sure you went and see. They were mostly archaeological places in Greece and in the southern part of Italy and I'm very pleased that we managed because we had the car, we were able to get deeply into those places and it just incredible memories from them and I can understand now more years have gone on I understand now what he was trying to draw out and you know help open the eyes to so we worked our way up to Sweden and I joined the firm of Arcos Architect Contour led by two German Berlin architects in fact so talk about this this uh, cultural mix they had been working in Berlin and then when the wall went up and everything changed, they decided to move up to Scandinavia and set up their practice in Sweden. The reason Aldo connected in was because he had produced a factory building, in fact, in the United States for Volvo, the car manufacturer, and Volvo's principal, the director, and Aldo had a very strong rapport. And he then commissioned Aldo to design the Volvo headquarters building in Sweden, in Gothenburg. And Gothenburg is where I ended up in the practice. This affiliate practice was therefore the associate who helped deliver the project on the ground in Gothenburg, along with, you know, to Aldo's design work. Interestingly, also, Lynn Utzen, Jorn Utzen's daughter, as a ceramicist, had, had been emerging with her ceramic work just prior to that, and Aldo had been one of the first architects to involve her ceramics at architectural scale in projects in, I think it was Seattle, and he also then involved her in the ceramics project scale in this Volvo headquarters building, uh, mm. amongst many other artists. What did you feel you were mainly learning while you were there? Did you feel like you were mainly learning about extremely practical architectural things or did working overseas feel like it was extending you into other areas that maybe the practical architecture skills uh, didn't cover? It's an interesting thought. It was a very different scale of practice. So where I'd come from, you know, 150 on the Parliament project plus all the consultants and Parliament authority and construction managers, this was back to the small-scale practice of six or seven of us 
um, the two lead directors from Berlin and then another guy from Iceland, another from North Sweden, a couple from North Sweden, a couple from South Sweden and another from Finland. And it was a really beautiful mix of that sort of cultural background that drew the different perspectives together and you know that just opened up so much in terms of thinking and of course Scandinavian design is so strong and to be embedded in it for a significant amount of time and to be part of the design practice where yes in Sweden they do have a different setup where you can be a technical architect or you can be a design architect and we had both in the practice of course I'm coming from our Australian training and we are more design architects with with some practical application but what I found started to happen after the first few months where I I was first employed on a, a little beautiful little project an airport which was up the north of Sweden and it was a black charred timber forming the back of the geometry and then a white timber with the glazing forming the front and it was just a very beautiful crafted small piece of architecture which was very connected to that particular place up in the north of Sweden where we had to travel and, you know, it was quite an effort to get there but really worthwhile. And then another project that came up which is interesting in this international perspective was actually because of the connections to Volvo and Aldo's work with this affiliate firm on the Volvo headquarters, we then had more work on other parts of Volvo's projects. And one of them was in Belgium, in Ghent. And Ghent's an old town, has an old waterfront, which has a a very big area or significant area of heritage, historic community value. And this is where the Volvo truck company manufacturing was wanting to expand into the waterfront, the canal front. And so I actually became extremely useful at that point because English turned out to be the, the common language between the Belgians and the Swedes. And I was doing all the, the drawings because Aldo had hinted that I could draw. So one of the directors was heavily trying to see if I could, you know, how I could draw. And, and I was doing really well. And then I just went a bit too far one night when I was working back late and he came in the next morning <laughs> and said, <laughs> oh, and I wish you'd just held it back then. So, you know, so anyway, but, but we, we also then I had to write up and, and, you know, put the words together that were part of the presentations for presenting these project concepts with the historical, you know, master planning. Yeah, so that was amazing. So I had sort of both scales of experience and also the directors and the other architects, you know, from all these different parts of Scandinavia. We we were there from spring through the summer and then beyond that a bit further. And the summer is when all of Sweden goes to the water edge and they all have these summer homes and they're all made, you know, they work on them every summer for the, the six weeks that summer is, not even probably. So we were lucky then to go out almost every weekend with one or other of the colleagues who would take us to their beautifully designed architectural pavilion summer house or the um, renovation or the upkeep they were doing on a 200-year-old little boat shack that was also some others had that sort of thing. And, you know, it was just amazing to see both the very contemporary 
design expression out in the landscape and the very historic and then compare that with living in Gothenburg and getting up to Stockholm, you know, and Malmö is down the south. So, you know, it was a very broad experience. So I think what happened was that I've never forgotten that experience in Scandinavia and have always sought to go back. You know, I've been back a few times to Finland, back again to Sweden and back, of course, to Copenhagen. And uh, one of the internationals I was lucky to draw in in the last few years in teaching was to invite and we ended up hosting Johanny Palasma from Finland. And I'm, I'm sure that's because of the, the sort of affinity that I felt and continue to want to keep striving for. So it's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it must be interesting with Johanny. I mean, He's written so many texts that architecture students and architects read about and some of them try to practice the philosophy that he's written about. How do you navigate that when you're actually working with him at an academic level and students are trying to use some of that philosophy in their work? Well, you know, his his writing is very accessible. That beautiful book, The Thinking Hand, is something that you can just immerse yourself in and and there are many, many images and and drawings and he writes so evocatively that you can picture what he's saying so easily. And I think it's a very good way for students to get into the sense of the way in which we think and draw and make and conceive. And then once you've got an understanding of, of that, that one, you can delve deeper into the eyes of the skin and some of the other more deep philosophical writing that Johanny has done. But I think basically he's really connected to place and to, you know, authentic architecture. And I'm sure that's why he and Glenn Merkett, I've been very fortunate to be at places where they're both together and, you know, to be part of sort of a small talk about it. And they're sort of connected to place and to understanding how architecture can draw from that authentically and create places in which our well-being is supported and our our creative minds are extended. And of course, Christian Norbrook Schultz thinking on Genius Loci, Norway um, and the whole of Scandinavia, that was something I did in my thesis way back. My thesis was called the edge as an act of architecture, you know, so it was about threshold, boundary, beginnings, all of that sensibility. And so I think it is a sensibility. Yeah, and do you think that is that is a huge part of what allows architects to travel to different countries to practice is going through early conceptual design process of understanding place is something that can allow us to appreciate a different country's architecture and context even though we might have come from a completely different country with a different culture and history and, and, and architecture? Most definitely. I think that's what draws us to constantly seek out, you know, how another culture in another place with another climate, with another set of beautiful material skills, craftsmanship, what sort of architecture emerges from that. And I think that's why we constantly seek it out. And once you've been open to it or, or the possibility of 
of seeing it and understanding it, then you just keep wanting to connect, you know. So you start to find, I think, your own fit in the sensibility, you know, where you align. And certainly I know I really understand or, or try to understand, appreciate Scandinavian sensibility. It might be in my genetics somewhere way back, um, <laughs> along with the Irish, the lyric of the Irish. But the other aspect that you start to see is, well, there are other cultures that have this calm sensibility, this stillness, this very strong affinity for nature and authenticity drawing from nature. And that's where you find, you know, the Swiss architecture and certainly Japanese architecture. And I think that's why ultimately I've spent quite a bit of time now in Japan and trying to expose the students to this um, uh, this appreciation. And so we've we've taken the last five years we've taken student groups both masters and undergrads to Japan for three or four weeks at a time and have linked in with various architects over there who very kindly in, engaged and you know we've been seeing the work of but now engaging uh, certainly with Kingo Kuma many times and with Juni Ishigami and Hitoshi Abe and you know there's there's sort of the sensibility that you, that you draw and, and their generosity in sharing that understanding with the students is incredibly invaluable. You, so I, I'd never expected when you sort of go on this this path of what do you do after school and what are you what are you best aligned for. I had no idea really what architecture was. <laughs> I should have really because my grandfather, as it turns out, was an architect in Sydney and I, I understood that he drew and I understood that he, he had these beautiful implements and he passed them all on to me, these beautiful brass parallel rules and dividers and all sorts of drawing implements, original butter paper, um, original texts and things. But I was too young relative to his age to understand exactly what it was all about and then he passed away and then I ended up sort of looking at, well, what could what could I do after school? And I just luckily had all the right subjects to go into architecture. And then as I fell into that and, and started to grasp what it was and, and what I had as um, abilities for it, then you start to sort of find your feet. And, you know, having, having been introduced to Aldo when I was in my second year of uni, it was extraordinary to have him come out and give talk on the order of the city and the order of the land, the sort of idea of synthesis. I, I was very uh, shy, extremely shy, and but we were in a, a sort of seminar session with all the, the different years and at the end of his talk on ancient Greek architecture and, and understanding the topographical condition and how you set the sort of spiritual quality of architecture in amongst the cultural and amongst time, I dared ask a question at the end of all that, which was quite incredible for me to even try, and, and it was about he used this word synthesis and I didn't really understand what that was at that age and asked him to explain a little bit more. I was so um, nervous with asking the question that I could hardly hear him answer <laughs> because my, <laughs> my, the beat of my heart was too loud um, over the top. But, but I did. I, I grasped it uh, enough. And, of course, in all the many years later when we had many, many moments together over the drawing board or just going to see things and, and you know, just very luckily spent a lot of time with him right through to his passing at age 95, which is an incredible innings. 
he, of course, would give more insight and more understanding. So I could keep asking and revisiting those aspects as you sort of understand more and more. And he helped me with the teaching. So once I started to move in to teaching more, then he started to help me and he would come out and give talks and come into the review sessions. And when he turned 90, I actually set up a little winter intensive with the master's students who all came on board and we celebrated Aldo's 90th by this intensive session over six weeks, which was called Conversations with Aldo. And um, it was amazing that he was able to convey what he could and so clearly, so succinctly, it was incredible, right through. So, you know, I think that sort of exposure, if anyone is wondering how, how this happens, you, I think you just have to be in the right place at the right time, but you have to put yourself into some sort of way in which it might be possible for that to, to sort of arise. And I think that's what happened with Kengo Kuma being involved with this. It was just something at the back of my mind that I'd been teaching his sort of sensibility for you know, the anti-object, the particleization, just from reading his work and just being drawn to that Japanese sensibility, as I was starting to say, and, and his way of expressing that, trying to experiment, you know, with new ways of doing things and a more subtle, soft architecture and just sort of directing that a little bit into the thinking of the students as we as, we, as certain situations arose. And then eventually this sort of opportunity came up where Design Canberra festival which is now in its seventh year and I've been involved pretty much in all of them they were keen on trying for the first time an an ephemeral pavilion which was you know temporary but set outside and and able to withstand for about three four weeks but using perhaps an international architect and I said well you know maybe given the time frames of Tokyo to Canberra and the fact that we're in a landscape setting and it's a design capital or design festival focusing on authentic natural architecture. Maybe we could approach, you know, somebody like Kengo Kuma because it would align with what he's been trying to pursue and he might be interested, therefore. He, he's, I said he's starting to do a couple of projects in Sydney. Maybe he's got reason to, to come here just, you know, as a, as a by part of that and he teaches at University of Tokyo in the Kumalo. So the Design Canberra director sent off a, a letter of invitation and he replied immediately and to get that email in your inbox one day later is <laughs> quite something. Um, and then, of course, we went through the design process via digital means a couple of years back. And, you know, it was a very you know, interesting situation because we're here sort of not critiquing, but trying to help Kuma-san understand what Canberra is is about and the, this particular little island in the middle of the lake in which this pavilion could be sited and that it was going to be made by the hands of students who were fairly unskilled and we had to walk it on over a little bridge connecting to the island by hand and it had to be robust enough to resist all of the um, swans and other animals on the island and all the teenagers who might spend overnight there you know sort of thing yeah. so <laughs> it was quite a quite a thing but he, he grasped it and because he's working with students on the Kuma lab is about weaving you know so it's that sort of 
fundamental of the first architecture arising from the weaving of fibre to create protection and then shelter. So he sort of has been pursuing that research for a long time and our pavilion fitted into that. So it was an extraordinary experience and involved more than 100 of our students and, and many over in Japan in Kumalab. And, and one of the faculty programs that we took a group of students across, they were then able to help with the weaving of the prototype in Japan, which then was exhibited and in which Kuma asked if we could be present and then he put me on the microphone to describe from our perspective the project involvement, which was a wonderful thing, which, you know, I still have to pinch myself that that happened. But I convinced him that he needed to come and spend at least a night in Canberra to see the built outcome of the the larger scale version that we had to create it in our workshop and that had to be outdoors as opposed to the prototype was indoors. And, and they had a sort of situation, a gallery where they the, it was slumping in its soft, supple form, but needed to be a bit more robust and they just put wires and hooked them up to the beams of the gallery and of course we had no way of being able to hook up to the clouds so um (laughs) we had to do something it got very it was quite a quite an intense period because we're on a deadline there were all these expectations our budget was very tight using students um trying to understand how we could push this into something that was that would manage the external conditions um and so we created a, a new tension filament which we wove into the structure and Kumasan was very interested in that, which then enabled him to think forward again and the V&A work that he did, not the Dundee work, but the work that was a small pavilion experiment, he progressed where we'd got to and he found a way to line the structure of the bamboo components with carbon fibre, which is we had looked partially at that because we have carbon fibre in our workshops um, specialisation. So we'd almost, but um, it was fantastic to be mm. part of that, yeah. Oh, it must be incredible working with an architect of, of that stature and, you know, international renown. For any architects who are thinking about putting their name forward for larger public projects where EOIs are required, based on your experience now working with all of these amazing architects and especially most recently um, all of these Japanese architects, do you think it's worthwhile that architects should start having these international conversations and potentially asking if international architects want to work on joint venture projects? I think what's really valuable is that you start to share what's common, you know, and they're a universal truths to how we are as you know we relate to each other how we relate to our place and to nature and and what changes in various places is the material that you work with the craftsmanship processes and the perspective you might draw from your own culture and I think it's interesting to see the differences but also to see where you align and how common all of these shared aspects of life are And therefore, yeah, absolutely, it's incredibly valuable if there's ever a chance for anyone who's, you know, emerging into the profession, working through the profession, to take these or or look for these opportunities and to collaborate. It's certainly, it's it's an incredible learning curve because a lot of it's unknown and you just have to trust yourself that you'll cope with it somehow. But the thing is that if you enter with genuine, authentic intention and the other 
the person on the other side also embodies that quality, then you can't really go wrong because you're all trying to head in the same direction of trying to create an architectural language that is responsive and suited and, and attuned to where we are in our time of, of this life and to create something that can endure. So I think it's, it is of value for every emerging architect to look beyond and to reach out and to, you know, you'll be amazed at you might have this notion and 20 years later it starts to become something that suddenly is possible because some opportunity or some something coincided. And, and that's what I, I was starting to say, that I just had no idea as a young person, as a young architect, that I would ever have the chance to, to sort of overlap with some of these incredibly thoughtful architects of our era so directly and you know they they always are so kind and so generous and if you connect on an authentic honest level they connect with you and they seek out more and that's what I found that it's really the same for the students if if they involve themselves in in an authentic honest manner then they learn more they they get more out of it and it continues for them so I think that's important. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for sharing the journey that you've been through over the years. It's been really wonderful to hear about your experience starting out and then moving overseas and, and expanding we didn't, we didn't your, even, your knowledge there. We didn't even yeah, talk about things we didn't even beyond talk about New York. We didn't even <laughs> no. get to New York. Yeah. New York um, is amazing. And Singapore. We didn't get to Singapore. I know. There's, just, there's, there's not enough time. We need a whole other podcast to get through the whole career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. It's just so wonderful. And I think it's any architect should aspire to spend and work some time overseas because sometimes you can't nail down just how much no. you can get out of it. And those connections continue. You know, you sort of stay in touch with people that you worked with in New York. I still keep in touch. One of them was, in fact, an Icelandic Danish um, very close friend who we've stayed in contact, another from Philadelphia. You know, sort of you make these connections and they stay with you for life. Um, no matter how infrequently you end up talking, but you, you've got them. And then the more recent ones that are perhaps more around projects or academia or, or just interest end up being something that you share. And so you sort of every now and then you, you think to connect and write and, and you get a response and, and you're amazed. But I think it's it's really valuable and, and it just shows you that you can start in a little small place in a very humble way and life can open up for you if you keep your mind positive and optimistic uh, there's all sorts of things that can come along to um, redirect your efforts absolutely and I've been through quite a few but um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not easy I'm not saying it's easy but, <laughs> but it is something yeah. that you know if you can hold your temperament towards the positive um, then these things are possible and they're very rewarding and they continue to be enlightening and thank you, Daniel, for the opportunity to uh, reflect on this because you, when you're in the midst of all the deadlines you've got, you, you sometimes forget that it, that it is valuable what we're all able to be part of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, yeah, we look forward to hearing more about the wonderful work that you're doing in the future. Thank you, Daniel, and you too. While many people choose to work close to home after they graduate, Samantha Cotterell went in a completely different direction. 
Once Samantha received her architectural qualifications, she moved with her partner to Milan to work in the office of Aldo Rossi. But she decided to accept an offer to work with Vittorio Gregotti on the master plan for the Lisbon Expo. This set her off on a career that has allowed her to use her Australian education on major international projects all around the world. All right, Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. How are you going over there in Saudi Arabia? Oh, good morning, Daniel. It's nice to um, have a chat with you from Saudi Arabia. I'm in a place called Alula, which is in the northwestern region of Saudi Arabia, closer to the border with Jordan and a short flight from Egypt, so we're close to the Red Sea. And um, while it's a quite a remote place, it's I mean, the nature is just so beautiful and the projects we're doing here are extraordinary so um i'm, I'm really have really enjoying enjoying my time fantastic so tell us about working on such an iconic project as almost one of your first projects the lisbon expo just what was your role in that and how, how did that how did that go well so i was obviously i was a junior architect so it was enormous scale of something to work on for us and it was a master plan but what's interesting about the master plan of an expo is that you're creating let's say the city um, first of all, it was in a reclaimed area, so you, you're dealing with regeneration of a city, and then um, you're, you're you're dealing with a project that's very kind, it's a very diplomatic project really, because it's a negotiation with all the different countries who are all coming to showcase what they do best or what their thinking is. I mean, expos are places where the world comes together to address topics of common concern that you can't really address otherwise. So all the countries then come and build their own pavilions. So we were designing a master plan that would then accommodate the different pavilions. But um, it was such a it was such a fantastic scale to work on um, as a young architect. First of all, in an environment that was um, Gregotti's office was dealing with. Um, they had an urban design department. They had a graphic design department, which was actually responsible for the Prada, uh, among many famous brands, also for the Prada, um, that beautiful red logo, and then big architecture components. So that you, you're, first of all, as a young architect, you're involved in all this, you're in an environment that you're absorbing so much more than just the project that you're on. And then you're working on things that are at a scale that you wouldn't have access to something like that that often in in, in your career. Yeah, well, that must be such a huge learning curve dealing with the like you say, the diplomatic considerations of of each country's and each designer's area in an expo. I mean, how, how do you how do you manage that when you start to tackle such a delicate arrangement of spaces on such a huge scale? So, I think if you'd asked me that question um, even five years ago, I probably wouldn't have been able to answer. But I um, ended up being design director for the Dubai Expo, and that was my recent, that was my most recent job before moving to Saudi Arabia. And um, I learned an incredible amount there, specifically about expos. And well, the way you deal with it is it's broken down into manageable pieces, and you are working for a large organisation who is which is divided into many different departments. I mean, every department has its has its area of expertise, but these different areas of the organisation effectively turn into clients for us as the architectural team within that organisation. So it's like having a multifaceted client and you really just spend days and days and days getting into what operationally each of these departments do and take care of how they manage the countries, what the relationships are, what kind of things are going to be showcased, what is architecture, 
at the moment in time in which you're designing. I mean, here we are in the fourth industrial revolution with robotics taking over everything. Can you be an expo, in, which is all about the future, and ignore or not take into consideration things like that? Of, of course you can't. So, And how do you bring them a little bit ahead of time so that they're meaningful? So working in, in major events is really fascinating from that point of view because you learn so much about many different areas of life or, or professions. Yeah. yeah, and I mean... Now that we're in this digital age where you can see things from all over the world so easily and look at architects' drawings and, and the images and videos of their projects so easily, does it become a struggle to make expos seem as relevant as they used to in the past when you had to have the expo come to a city and you had to go and see it to experience it? Uh, how do you think that you know, that's, that's changing in, um, in you know, the times that we're living in now? Well, it, it, your question's very relevant to what's happened now. I mean, the Expo Dubai 2020 was meant to open on the 20th of October 2020. And obviously because of COVID, it will no longer. So now it's, what's been postponed by a year, and if that happens, of course, we're not sure. But so how does that, that sort of forced the whole digital side visitation, digital visitation, virtual experiences. And it's something that while we were doing all the planning, we talked a lot about how do we build um, an expo that is relevant to, you could be sitting somewhere in Brazil, but still participate, you know, in this era, you should be able to do that. But we were were faced with a lot of difficulties and a lot of challenges to that. And now all of a sudden, here we are forced to do that. So it's redefining everything about major events. And I think Dubai Expo is caught a little bit in the middle because we've already built the expo because we're expecting to host it this year. You know, but now we've, it, it, we don't even know if all the people will be able to come at the time where it does open. So it's all a reinventing how that's going to work. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you know, the Tokyo Games was postponed for another year or so to see what happens. But you were also involved in the Commonwealth Games in India and the planning the planning of the of the grounds of the Commonwealth Games. I mean, what was that experience like for another international event where you've got, you know, such a, a goodwill event where everyone's coming together to to celebrate athletic achievement? How did it feel, yeah, putting putting architecture in that mix? So well actually I've um after Milan I actually she went to Athens to work as an architect on the Olympic Games there. And um, after spending four years on the Olympics, I then was offered the opportunity to move to Qatar, to the Middle East, to head the design team for the Asian Games, which is sort of like an Olympics, but just for Asia. And then off the back of that, I ended up in Delhi, in Delhi for the Indian Games, as you mentioned, for the Commonwealth Games. So I've spent many years designing and developing and delivering architecture for major events. And what I absolutely love about that job is that you start at city level. You know, you're looking at brand country, so you're involved in how you're going to promote that brand. And architecture is all a big part of that and the experience you create. And you know, then how the city is going to be divided up and reorganized from everything from security to transport to experiences to venues. Then you need to go to the next scale, which is, let's say, the venue where a number of events would be happening. And, you know, you zoom in further and further to the field of play eventually where you're even dealing with, you know, what the banners are going to look like on TV in the main shot when the athlete performs their once-in-a-lifetime chance to win some medal. 
And after the event, so that's all very exciting. So you have this, you first you work at all these different scales and you're constantly zooming in and out of that scale, which I think is an architect's mind is very well trained to do. And then you get to the event, you get to live the event and manage the event. And then part of that role is to then pack up the city and all the venues and restore the city to a normalcy and deliver some kind of legacy. So unlike other architectural jobs where you would hand over the key to the client at the end of your design exercise and or delivering um, your project and say thank you very much, enjoy, you actually get to be part of that and run it and then you're responsible for how you deliver the city at the end. So it's very complete, it's very all-rounded kind of um, profession, which unfortunately you can't get to through study. So it's something you can only get to through work experience, uh, which makes it a bit of a niche sort of area. Yeah. Did this mean that you had to have your feet on the ground so that you could really get to know the city and place. And, and how did you put that team together to, to deliver for, for such a big, you know, that's, a, that's a definitely a very strong deadline-driven project. How did, you, um, how did you put that team together? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's, that, that's, that is the trouble, always the deadline. But I have to say the, the really good thing about that is it means that you, if things go well, you always do deliver or you make decisions so that you can deliver. And that cumulatively, if you have a career of delivering, that puts you in good stead for other opportunities. But um, specifically on the India project, that was a really, really tight um, I thought I thought I wasn't going to do that project because I was coincidentally found on Facebook of all places. A headhunter was looking around and even tackled tackled the Facebook platform. And when we finally spoke, he tried to get me to go to India to meet the chairman of the organising committee, and I just declined straight away because we were too far gone. It was about it was just under two years from when the event was going to start and that's not long enough to plan all the architecture of seventeen sporting venues and address the city and and, and. so uh, and I was full time employed in Qatar at, at the time. But I did have a team of Arab women from all different Arab countries who had been my team for the Asian for the Asian Games, the the Doha two thousand and six Asian Games. And we had formed a nice team and we all remained friends. So in the end, I decided to go to India just to meet because I was so insistent. I thought, worst comes to worst, I'll have a weekend in Delhi. By the time I got there, I thought, okay, well, let me see how I can be useful to the process. And I asked them to take me around to see all the venues so I could assess what state they were in and how much work needed to be done. And I then said, I'll take it back with me to Qatar. I'll think about it and I'll give you a proposal. So I went back and thought about it for a week and really just came to the conclusion that the only way we were going to be able to get anywhere on this project would be uh, we needed to jumpstart the um, design process by at least six months. So we, um, I, my offer back to them was that I would go back to Qatar, take all their government documents with me to another country, use a team they hadn't met and was not verified, and sit and do a first cut of the design. And then off the basis of what I came out with, I would return to Delhi and use those drawings to train a team that they would in the meantime have employed. And I thought there was no way they would accept that. But I thought if they did, then it better be worth my while too. So I made sure I put a nice fee on it. And um, anyway, they, they, they accepted. So I ended up leaving the full-time job and... Um, started my own business off the back of this actually called Design Sport. I, I created a company called Design Sport. And we managed to deliver the event, train a fantastic bunch of young um, Indian architects 
And um, I have to say it was the most rewarding personally and professionally experience we, mm. we, we've had. Oh, it just sounds so fantastic. And, you know, so many people work in maybe a single office in a single country or city for most of their career. How have you managed to move from city to city, country to country, working with people from all different cultural backgrounds when you you started off in Australia and now you're working in all of these strange contexts? It must be a huge culture shock every time you jump to the next project and the next building that you're working on. Is Is that a huge thing that you have to factor in before you start these projects? Yeah, it is. It, it definitely is. I think on the fir- in the first instance, being Australian or even the nature of, uh, yeah, as we are, we're all we're a multicultural society, and everyone seems to come from somewhere else. So you know, we travel a lot as Australians, and especially today, it's so much easier. So you you are open to all this influence. I, I feel like one of the first things we do when we get out of school or out of universities at least go traveling and that seems to become just part of people's lives and and generally on the international scene i think we're so i think we're just a bit we're adaptable and i feel like when you go to a new culture we have a kind of approach that's more let's bring our expertise here and let's see how we can adapt it to the local way of doing things to help this culture get where it needs to get to which is very different to a very other nationalities I've found are a bit more colonizing in their approach. Like, okay, we're here. We're going to show you how to do it. Everyone moves aside. This is, you know, this is how you do it. But that, I feel that that backfires a bit, and of course, it gives you a lesser, lesser value experience. I, I think I've found it fascinating. It's also a personal disposition for me. At some point in my past, I wanted to be a diplomat, not because I was interested in diplomacy, but I just wanted to be able to live in different cultures all over the world. And I'm so happy that architecture has given me that opportunity. But I think the way in which you get there is, I think in my case, it's been just learning a skill that is somehow it's its main value is in being able to take it around the world because the nature of major events is that it happens in different cities and different countries all the time. And every country who's starting out is looking for expertise to guide them through their project. So I, I think it's a bit of a, it, it's sort of a combination of, you know, the, or the confluence of luck and intent. You know, I may have had intentions to do a certain, to do certain things with my career with architecture, but then you also have the circumstances and luck definitely has its place, I'd say. It's interesting that on a lot of major projects in Australia, we are seeing some big-name international firms being brought into the mix when some people are saying we don't need international architects to do the work in Australia. If uh, an architect were to go overseas and do a bunch of experience and then come back, what knowledge do you think they could bring back with them that could then fill that gap that people think might be missing and why they think we need international architects? Well, I have, I have a couple of things to say. One, I think that that attitude is also goes back to that parochiality. It doesn't mean if you're getting some architect from abroad, it's not a threat to – I don't think it's a threat to what we have back home. I, I have a different opinion about that. I think, you know, architects of, of, a, of a certain stature are people who have worked extremely hard all over the world. They win the things they do because the opportunities they've given, they're, they're given, but also what they create for themselves. And it elevates the culture for everybody. So I, 
I'd like to look at us more as a global community than just a, a national. I think, yes, to answer your question about how you could improve perhaps the opportunity, maybe working overseas and coming back and getting better opportunities, I'm not sure if that's the answer to how you would become an architect of a certain calibre back home, but I think it could highly influence it. But what I think is of great value going overseas is there are scales of projects that you will probably never have in Australia or types of projects that you would never have in Australia. So it's not just about going away and having a cultural experience. It's about being able to be exposed to environments where, well, yes, there are many nationalities working, but that also brings different ways of working. So you get to learn more on the job. If you take Saudi Arabia, for example, it's a country that's all opening up and it's trying to diversify its economy away from relying on oil. So that's rethinking absolutely everything and designing cities out of deserts. There, there are incredible things going on in this part of the world. And I, there's a lot of room for people to come and work and bring their degrees and participate and work on these kind of projects. But they're the things that we're not probably going to have in Australia because we're so much more established. I mean, I don't think anyone can foresee such a big change in, in how we run our country or what we're going to build. So you, even when I first moved to Italy, I remember thinking, I'll never be able to survive here as an Australian architect because I've been educated in a place where people invest in young people. You, you get out of architecture and you can have the opportunity to design a house in, on a completely empty field. You may have family, friends or, or someone you know that needs something done. In Italy, things have been so over-designed, it's so crowded and there's so much talent that the most you can aspire to as a young architect is renovating your grandmother's balcony. I mean, it really does get down to that kind of scale. So, you know, there's lots of countries that don't have that opportunity, but if you don't put yourself around out there and put yourself around the world and look for other opportunities, I think it's just, it's too narrowing. So, and if you do go off and do those kind of things and you bring things back to Australia, then I think it helps Australia, it helps our, our mentality, it helps our, improves our sophistication even within our own profession and within our own community. I think there's a lot to bring back. I feel like Australia needs to also provide a place though, for, to bring people back into. I see this um, across other professions or areas as well, that a lot of the time in Australia we're a bit reticent to accepting people who've been overseas or we don't seem to be as interested in what they've done, which makes a lot of people just stay away. Whereas I've always thought it would be fantastic if maybe even at government level, there was some incentive to bring people back once they've had a certain amount of time overseas or they've achieved a certain amount in their careers. It would be good to harness that that thinking and bring it back into our own communities. Yeah, it seems to be a little bit of a misconception that, you know, if you work overseas a lot, then you're just an overseas architect. And then if you work in Australia a lot, you're just an Australian architect. <laughs> it's hard to, to actually cross over both ways. Yeah, that difference between, that, that's interesting, just in terms of the Institute of Architects and, and let's say the international chapter versus the local chapters, that is actually a bit of a difference between how we run the chapters. So, you know, if you're in Australia and you're, I mean, the, the local chapters all deal very much with everything that's architecture on the ground, whereas the international chapter, because depending on the country in which you're in, you will rely on the local Institute of Architects. So the international chapter is more about being a network and fostering this kind of thinking and really working on opportunities for Australian architects abroad and for Australian architects who 
are abroad, how they get back to Australia and how we improve that conversation and that connection. Yeah, and I think that's a really important platform to be promoting going forward. Absolutely. Yeah, connecting with architects overseas is a, yeah, a really important part of sharing with other architects and, and seeing how we can learn from one another. And yeah, there's a lot of foreigners who come to Australia now too to look for experience. So it's going in the other direction. There's a lot of and there's a lot of people who are, you know, with Europe falling apart a little bit, there's a lot of people looking for another life in Australia as, as architects as well. So there's a whole other interesting layer of knowledge and education to be shared in, in reverse, not, not just about Australians going elsewhere, but also about welcoming foreigners and integrating that knowledge as part of our own community. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Samantha, well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been wonderful hearing about all of the experience that you've had. It's just so vast and surprising. And if you haven't got that career super planned out, that, uh, you know, you can sort of fly by the seat of your pants and, and just have a great career in architecture and just let it take you where it leads you. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast. And, yeah, we hope to talk to you in the future. Okay. Thank you so much. All the best. With their spiritual home and first office in Tasmania, Terawa are one of Australia's most successful international architecture practices. After graduating from the University of Tasmania, Scott Barnforth and our guest Jared Weymouth decided to start a practice with one of their tutors, Richard Blythe, with offices in Hobart and Sydney. After a very rough start in 1999, the firm slowly grew until the repercussions of the GFC hit in 2009 which led Jared to the serendipitous establishment of their office in Denmark. After establishing their practice, Jared quickly learned that the Scandinavian approach to and perspective of architecture is very different to what happens in Australia. All right, Jared, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Uh, very good, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. No worries at all. Well, it's uh, really fantastic to, to speak with you um, and to hear about the journey that Terroir's gone through, um, having offices in Hobart, Sydney, and also in Denmark. Um, but coming back to the, the functional requirements of setting up the office internationally, I mean, how did that actually work for you? I mean, it must be really difficult to be based in a whole other continent and then have an office in Europe. H how did you make that work? Yeah, it's very interesting because, of course, we look at some architects colleagues, um, we could look at Bjarke, um, you know, the Danish office that, that went international and see a market. There are, of course, certain practices. Uh, Snuheta has even now found their way to Australia and others where they obviously reach a particular modus operandi and perhaps, I suppose, just market power that, that you can just have them you know, and you want them uh, and you don't care, you know, whether Kittel Torsen from Snoheda's in Australia or not, Snoheda still get jobs here or you've just had obviously um, Schmidt Hamalesson do your library in Melbourne. So we're not there, if that makes sense. We're, we're much more local, um, less spectacularly well-known firm. And so, of course, it matters to be there. Coming back to your question, um, we don't have the luxury of me just saying, well, you know, it's going to fly automatically laps of the world. So, so one of the, the issues has been a commitment to being there. And Denmark's a very small country, right? It's five and a half million people, very consistent culture. So we had, again, via personal connections, a long history with Denmark, with universities in Denmark, and had had a lot of Danes come through here. So in the 12 years or so of the practice, we've had about three people run that office, and they've all been previously working in Sydney. 
So uh, what we have is a sort of terroir diaspora, particularly across Sweden and um, Denmark. And so in terms of running it there, it's always been very important to have someone who is a local running the office. And then that's allowed me the luxury, if one wants to call it that, of being there um, for some of the time. But for the last decade, I've been there pretty well 50% of the time. Right. And how has that worked, the office being self-sufficient? Has it been primarily working on competitions and doing some work on Australian projects or how have you balanced that out? It's been quite a mix. So at the start, the Danish office started winning buildings when we couldn't get a house extension in Australia for some reason. And so it had this moment where it was the centre of the building activity. And I'm thinking the first third, if you like. The middle third, it was autonomous and the Australian office is going through a growth phase. At the moment, it's less autonomous. And we've got a, a very small team there who tend to be working there's a lot of competition work in Denmark, uh, which is paid. So you can run an office on competitions, then using those skill sets to work back into Australian projects. I should say we never really do anything. Terroir is 30-something people in sitting in three different locations, but it's one office and one bank account, quite bluntly. And so in that sense, I don't think there's a single project in the office that happens in that office solely, if that makes sense. Um, there's always someone from somewhere else somehow involved. Right, okay. So how has that helped you approach your architecture, having two offices in Australia and one office in Denmark? What what have you seen as the biggest mental or different um, architectural approach as a younger practice starting up in two different countries with two different architectural cultures? Yeah, it's probably, um, yeah, it probably is three key points. And to some extent, they might all be founded on the fact that Denmark has historically graduated a lot of architects per head of population. There are architects everywhere. There are architects running pension funds. There are architects, you know, when you go to the council, the council planner was once an architect. So what it means is there's a level of conversation one can have architects ending up in building companies. So you have, you know, a lot of DNC where the builder is actually such an advocate for the architecture. So I'll just say there's just lots of architects everywhere, which probably constructs a series of conversations. There's probably, therefore, yeah, three key issues. One is a commitment to the public realm and the focus of architects on public buildings. So, you know, the project of the house is just simply not really of any interest in Denmark. You know, there are very few practices that do houses. And, and, you know, you do housing and you go to Ikea. So that you might say the sort of fetishistic thing we have in Australia over interiors and, um, and I'm speaking for our practice too, I'm not uh, in that sense, uh, we're, we're all in it, um, just doesn't exist. Uh, and so that's a very different sort of discussion when, because of course you're dealing with a social democracy and again I'll be probably a bit simplistic in a lot of these comments, Therese, but, you know, there is an idea about the public, the public good, the collective and so there's just not a culture to celebrate incredibly fetishistic timber and copper detailing in a house. So that's just a profoundly different space to be in when that discussion just doesn't exist. The second perhaps big one is therefore the commitment to the city overall. And, of course, we get a bleed of that here with, you know, Yan Gale and various others involved in our cities. But I'd say there's an incredible group of people working between architecture and landscape the relation between architecture and landscape is quite different there in my experience. They're just some mind-blowingly good landscape architects 
half their staff are Arctics. Sometimes they work collaboratively with Arctics all the time. We're getting now more of that here, but that has been something that we noticed from the start was very different. And then finally, um, in this commitment to the city is a commitment to, let's call it, its people and their training. So very young people participate in planning and making the city. So we are in the situation as our office after 20 years, um, you know, Scott and I now have some grey hairs. Um, Richard went grey uh, <laughs> 10 years before us. Um, and so now we're all of a sudden maybe allowed to do a couple of things. Uh, in Denmark, it was basically a bunch of 30-year-olds making the city. It's incredible. And there's a very different yeah, confidence in the youth to make the city. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think the benefit of that was? I mean, because you, you would have still gone through all the due diligence that any architect needs to go through to create great architecture. What do you think the benefit is of, of allowing younger firms and younger architects working in the realm of city making? Yeah, there's a great line from Mabel O. Wilson, American architect who has this, uh, or she's one of a number of people involved with this website, Who Builds Your Architecture, WBYA. And you might say a very simple premise, which is that architecture should be built by the society it's for. And, of course, she's coming from a very particular American culture and incredible lack of diversity um, in the profession, which we, of course, have here. Now, Denmark's not diverse. You know, it's uh, five and a half million people um, with an incredibly tight, you'd say, Scandinavian gene pool. But they are still very interested in diversity in the sense of the cross-section of society. So they would say, well, city is for young people, it's for old people, it's for working people, it's for not working people, and all these people somehow should be involved in making the city. So um, it just simply wouldn't be considered a risk or a problem that a 25-year-old would do a public square. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to overcook it. As you say, it's competitive like everywhere else. But historically, there have been smaller projects available to younger officers quite particularly set aside so you don't get big officers swooping down to do very small projects that is for younger architects and you just get a different engagement there's a lot of other consultancies around urban design so Denmark's got we've got a couple of these sort of things in Australia but in Denmark there's just heaps and heaps of let's call it pseudo architectural consultancies that deal with public engagement public participation um brief making and so on for public spaces, pop-up spaces, and that's a whole yeah, area of work. So, yeah, they would say, and I'd say it's true to some extent, that um, it's a good thing to have a cross-section of society making the, the public spaces. Yeah. Is that also, I guess, a link in terms of the, the scale of practice is less less important on the scale of projects that it gets in, in Denmark? Yeah, look, I think, and I'm probably conscious of not, um, what's the word, overly... Um, glamorizing in that um, it is, if you look at Denmark over the last 30 years, we had the economic boom, four or five big practices appeared, Schmidt Hammer Lesson, 3XN, Sif Muller were always there and a couple of others. And so it was a case that 20 years ago, there were only four or five officers getting all the work, people would complain. And I would say that was true, but compared to Australia, there were still other opportunities. Now what's happened is a lot of those big offices have all gone offshore Henning Larson's offshore, Schmidt Hammer Lesson's offshore, 3XN's offshore. Between them, they're hardly doing any work in Denmark. That's allowed a new group to come through. And as always, it's a combination of people that were um, quite small 20 years ago. But there's yeah, diff definitely different size of practice. So 
I'm probably not being very precise in saying, look, as you say, the procurement stuff still requires that you have, um, you know, a bank account with money in it. Uh, there's EU procurement which gets overlaid, which has very specific rules around liquidity and so on. But there's definitely a lot of, let's call it, niches and corners where you find people doing little projects that, of course, then get them uh, to the next level. A good example, if you go back 20 years, would have been Big, which was then Plot when it was Julian and Bianca, and they did this Harbour Baths in Copenhagen. And they were like, you know, a bunch of 25-year-olds smoking cigarettes in a sort of um, slum house in Vestibor. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, they imagine in Melbourne saying we're going to have the new swimming bath on the Yarra mm. and you give it to a couple of hungover-looking guys, um, <laughs> who've, you know, who've just come back from working for OMA. Mm-hmm. Um, we just wouldn't do that. We're just mm. far more conservative. Mm. Um, and so, the, so as I said, I'm, it's not like this all the time, but there are – these opportunities, you know? Mm, Absolutely. Well, now that you've got so many projects in Australia under your belt and you've started to get some projects in in Denmark under your belt, can you tell us about the projects that that you have now completed over in in Europe and Scandinavia? Yeah, there's two um, uh, key built works um, and there's a series of um, second places, which I'm still quite proud of because when you get a second place in that context, you know, you're competing against MBRDV or, you know, the, the sort of European um, sort of artillery, as it were. So um, the two built projects that are um, of significance, of most significance, are a sort of young person's housing, like youth housing um, in Aarhus that was completed around 2015, and another one completed around 2016 in the south of Sweden, which is um, a maritime university for the UN. Both were one in conditions where our outsiderness mattered. In the case of the Aarhus one, it was a local architect, a Kubo, um, and a 50-50 collaboration. And that competition was predicated on the fact that it, there should be a local involved. They should have someone from outside. So we were the one they, they chose. I suppose we ticked the young box and the outside box. In the case of this project in southern Sweden, that was also like all these things internationally um, procured, sort of um, EOIs, then shortlisted competitions, paid, and then winning the competition. Uh, and that was a collaboration 50-50 with Kim Utzen. Uh He's done a lot of work in southern Sweden. And again, we were perceived to have a particular perspective from outside. And in the case of that project, the client financially was the council. They were building the building, but the tenant was the UN, which is obviously an international organisation. So and they, of course, worked also in English. So both those projects um, were procured in a DNC uh, format. Uh, in Sweden, almost everything is DNC, but quite different. Danish architects are quite proud of their system. They've got a good bunch of builders and you get very good results, or as I said before, the builders um, definitely on your side. In Sweden, it's much more brutal and it's actually quite hard to be an architect in Sweden from my experience. But there, because we had the UN as a total outsider and um, the design of that project so people could look it up on our website. It's called Tornhuset, T-O-R-N-H-U-S-E-T. It's quite complex and knowing that the Swedes don't do complexity, we just made it more and more and more complicated. And what that (laughs) meant was we had to be retained during construction because um, only we could work out the geometry. So that was quite a deliberate, wasn't the reason we did the design in the first place, but realised at a certain point, We've got to make this thing impossible to build without our help, if that makes sense, which might be an odd thing to do. So um, they're the two projects, largest projects completed. 
There's been a few other smaller projects. Denmark has a lot of these uh, kare, they call them, the big courtyard housing. We've done various you know, um, smaller projects in and around those. And a couple of um, second places in competitions, um, a major one in, in Aarhus, a major big public renewal area of an old rail and like an old coal crane and sort of storage area. And a couple of other nice things we've had to do in Denmark have been shortlisted for a couple of competitions for really old places. So one was Trelleborg, so it's a, a round Viking fort, you know, literally 1,000 years old or older, and we had to do a visitor centre for that and another visitor centre competition. We also had a close shave, Molesbier, which is um, one of the earliest medieval fortifications in Scandinavia. So it's also been a nice part of practising there because you have these sort of almost mythical projects such as the visitor centre to a Viking fort, yeah. Absolutely. Well, now that you've got all these wonderful projects under your belt and it's, you know, as you mentioned, it's got these great perspectives and really great, uh, you know, histories and contexts that you can do a deep dive into, how has it affected your approach in Australia? Do you now look at architecture in Australia through a different lens or the process of designing an architecture through a different lens? Yeah, look, I think... um I'm not sure if this is a healthy thing. It probably um, perhaps reinforced in a way our acceptance of our position as, in one sense, outsiders. Uh, people might think that's an odd thing to say. I mean, terroir has been around for 20 years and we've had a, a very good run in doing organising national conferences and biennales and things. But, you know, in 20 years we've not got an architecture award in New South Wales. We're not really people that are, for whatever reason, of workers of any great interest. And in Tasmania, we were very conscious when we started of trying to take a different path, a particular, let's call it Tasmanian Gothic path that Room 11 and others have, have done, you know, extraordinary work that I'd say is perhaps part of that sort of discussion. And uh, so in that sense, I suppose we, were, we came from a position of trying to explore something different. At, at that point, Tasmania had been dominated by, I'll call it some post-East Coast US thinking, sort of New York Five and, and a sort of nuts and berries influenced timber architecture. And we were just quite interested in yeah, the Richard Flanagan version of architecture. You might say, what might that be? Um, this Tasmanian Gothic, uh, Tasmanian. And that was very influenced by Nordic architecture, by Sverfen and people like that. Because we're in Tasmania going, where else in the world is like this? So we were looking at Nordic architecture well before the Nordic connection came. And so in a funny way, it probably reinforced that a little bit. And perhaps that thing of finding friends somewhere in the world, if that makes sense, a sort of dialogue that a dialogue <laughs> that um, yeah. other people are interested in uh, having. And, and, of course, it does give us sort of credibility. And I say this not, you know, obviously it's hard because one can't see facial expressions on, on podcasts, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm saying credibility, inverted commas, um, mm. in that, you know, we'd done these things overseas and so, and we hadn't been able to have the opportunities here. So this was probably the important thing that our office was having a terrible time. We'd, be, we'd been the young architects. We just couldn't get to the next level. And all of a sudden in Denmark, we're getting all these projects we couldn't get in Australia. And getting them in Australia was, was in large part having done them in Denmark, uh, both buildings, but also we do a lot of urban strategy work um, in New South Wales, um, like really large-scale master planning um, the Bays District, uh, the airport, the new Western Airport. And that came from work we're doing in Denmark um, that we um, were able to bring back here and, uh, a skill set that we'd acquired there. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's just been 
awesome hearing the story of your international office and, and how that's influenced the work that you're doing. And it's been really lovely seeing the, the development of Terroir over the years. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jared. And we're, yeah, we look forward to seeing more from, from Terroir and the amazing work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks again for having me. I think it's great um, that you're doing these podcasts. Um, and I think we've, in these corona times, come more and more to really value um, people trying to get good content um, accessible via digital means. So um, bravo and keep it up. This has been episode five of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Anne Cleary, Samantha Cotterell and Jared Weymouth for your contribution to architecture in Australia and also abroad and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gorton, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team is Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.